Thank you, David. That was, that was absolutely beautiful and so worshipful. We begin tonight a study in Revelation. It is a one-night study. If you are someone who likes to take notes, let me say, uh, I'll be using maybe some terminology you're not familiar with. All this will be posted on the web by this time next week, and there will be at least an audio and maybe a video as well posted on our link at First Baptist Church. So if you miss something, don't worry. We'll have it there for you. You can go back and you can listen. Uh, we have been studying Acts, and if, years ago we did this with Revelation. We went verse by verse and chapter by chapter, and we'll do that again within the next two years. We kind of rotate these things, but we have some of our Sunday schools are about to study John's Apocalypse or Revelation, and so we're trying to prepare. It's kind of set a broad view, and then we'll get back with our, our study and Acts. Well, I want to read a portion for you. I'm not even going to tell you where I'm reading because the first thing I want you to realize is that it was intended to be heard more than read. Uh, it's kind of like when you read the book or you, you see the movie, which is better? Reading the book, right? Your mind creates images. Well, even preceding that, if you were just listening with open ears, you might see images. And so just let me read and you just listen as we begin our, our study. Listen to these words. After these things, I looked. And behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the spirit of a hold. A throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments, golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceed flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which were the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass-like crystal. In the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion, and the second creature like a calf, and the third creature had the face like that of a man, and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night, they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before him, saying, Worthy art thou, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed, and were created. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. 
And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book? Who is worthy to break its seals? And no one, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop crying. Behold, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand, a hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having one harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break the seals for thou wast slain and this purchase for God with thy blood the men of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and a priest of God and they will reign upon the earth wow that's powerful isn't it this image of God seated on the throne the jeweled image the glassy sea the strange creatures which surely represent a facet of every part of his creation, the elders there, and all they can do is say, he has been, he is, and he will be, and he is worthy because he is creator. You ever notice how many of our old hymns celebrate God as creator? That's the song of heaven. He is creator. And then it's all ruined because he has the future there all rolled up in a scroll and, well, just starts crying because there is no one worthy, no one has earned the right to open that scroll. One of them says, hey, quit crying. We got it. We got it. It's a lion from the tribe of Judah. You look to see a lion and you see a lamb. Seven horns, seven eyes, looks as if he has been slain. Crucified, you see? And they begin to say, you are worthy. Worthy because he was obedient to death. What do some of our old hymns say? And new hymns alike? We celebrate because he has purchased us with his blood, he is worthy. All is well. We really have a little bit of advantage tonight doing this in one session. One of the problems with going through Revelation, verse by verse and chapter by chapter, is you miss the big picture. Uh, in the beautiful churches in Russia, there is a lot of tile or mosaic in the churches and 
And sometimes when we study Revelation, we're, we're like the person up against a wall and they're looking at one tile. If I were to stare and look at this one violet circle, I have missed the image and I can debate exactly what hue it is and whether that's copper around it or gold and whether or not it's really gold leaf or not. And well, it isn't it odd and wonder if there's any, and I miss the whole thing. And, and when I back up and, and quit doing that and I, I quit looking at the individual tiles and I look at the mosaic, I go, wow. And maybe part of our problem is we're too caught up in the details. The reality of Revelation is this, God is on his throne, we win at the end, and it is through the person of the slain lamb and resurrected lamb that God gets his business done. There it is, we, we got 30 minutes left. There we are, <laughs> Revelation done. Don't miss the big picture. The second thing I'll say is, you probably don't interpret the way I interpret it. My interpretation is not the interpretation of the average Baptist pew. I've been your pastor 21 years. I've told you from time to time how I interpret it. I have no arrogance about that. In fact, there is a large part of me that hopes that some of you are right and I'm wrong. I like it better the way you believe it. I just don't think that's what it says. You with me? So if, don't get puffed up. If you're right, I'm glad. If I'm wrong, I'm all the happier. But the first thing I would say tonight, especially those who will be teaching Sunday school is, the key word to interpreting apocalyptic literature is humility. Humility. It's a complex book. It's a complex genre of literature. And if you come to it with arrogance and lay out the chart and say it has to be this way, well, no, lay out four charts if you're gonna lay out the chart. You see, it is complex. And the church throughout the ages, we will see tonight, has interpreted it different ways. And what would make me so arrogant as to say that Augustine got it all wrong, and thank goodness our generation came along and straightened it out. You see the problem with that? And Augustine did not see it like Martin Luther or Calvin. Is, is the world, world events, they shade how we see the book, you see. And so in their era, they saw it differently still. And then move on over to Charles Finney. He sees it different than Luther. Move on over to evangelicals today. And we're probably all premillennialists, and I am with you on that part of it. It's just a little narrow part I'll differ with you probably. We're all premillennialists, and who are we to say that Augustine had it all wrong? You see? The church throughout history has given evidence of different ways of reading the book. And if you get caught up in those different ways and have bloody wars over it, my goodness. You have lost, you're looking at the one circle, and you have missed the grandness. None of us would disagree about the largest picture of the book. Get the big picture tonight. The big picture is this. God is going to judge. He's going to judge through his son. There are some believers who have, well, they've gone to mediocrity and they have 
become lovers of this world and it is to shock them into repentance. And others who in the midst of suffering, tribulation, the word comes to them, stay faithful, keep your garments white, don't get stained with the world. In the end, you'll be okay. I did a wedding last night and the custodian was cleaning up and she said, speaking of this morning's sermon, do you have a good sermon tomorrow morning? I said, you got any ideas? You got any ideas? <laughs> and she said, yes. Tell them that Jesus is going to return and they better get they, their life straight. She got it. That's, that's revelation. She got it. So I'll apologize to her tomorrow that I saved her sermon for tonight versus this morning. But her message was, Jesus is going to return, so you better tell them that they better get their lives straight. That's it. That's Revelation. Well, here's some principles of interpretation. First of all, don't look at current events to unlock the truth of Scripture. You know, the, the worst thing you can do is sit there with a newspaper in one hand and revelation in the other hand and spend your whole time studying revelation trying to match up current events. Well, if every generation did that, where were they in the 15th century? They, they missed it, right? And where were they? You, you, you see the 16th century, they missed it. And, and that's just a, that's a, really an arrogant game, isn't it? How many people have been called the Antichrist in your lifetime? Well, they were sure Henry Kissinger was it. Sure Ronald Reagan was the guy. We had a preacher in our town say it was Prince Charles. He was quite sure. Of course, I'm just going to say it. You heard the Obama theory, and surely somebody's thinking the other guy might be too. I don't know. There you, there you go. <laughs> the one with a lot of hair, you know. It, 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 as we, if we look at the newspaper in one hand and Revelation in the other hand, and we try to read it through current events, that is such an arrogant exercise. Wait a minute, time out. We've got real letters to real churches in Asia who were there and they were hurting. And if the only thing this book is about is what's happening in the Middle East today, then God bless their hearts. No, it was written to them. Is it all fulfilled in their day? No, because it goes all the way to the return of Christ, right? And the new heaven and the new earth, right? Not that it's all fulfilled then, but it had to mean something to them. It had to mean something in the first century, written probably around 90 AD by John. And so it had to mean something to them. They were to obey that word. They didn't have a newspaper from New York City or Chicago or Israel in 2016. You, you see what I'm saying? Be very careful about that. We have literal churches in Asia Minor who are, and the, the letters to the churches are handed out like a messenger would travel on the Roman road. And they, there's a real word to them. They're in real persecution. They're really falling back. They're lackluster, and they need to hear the word. And it was written using Greek language and Greek imagery, and it was meant for them to hear and to understand. Not that it's all fulfilled, but don't waste too much time trying to predict the future based upon the latest edition of the newspaper or the Internet 
or whatever. The second thing I would say as far as interpreting is realize the book had a real audience. Look at chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of prophecy and heed the things which are written in, for the time is near. They were both to read and to hear the words of prophecy and they were to heed them. Another word, they were to obey them. There was a real audience in the first century to whom this is written and they're really going through some difficult time. And God's word is always profitable for reproof, for correction, 2 Timothy 3. It's a biblical view of authority to say it was the real word of God to them in the first century and it really had something to say to them. In fact, if you were to go to a popular religious bookstore and go to the prophecy section, you're going to get a bunch of books by a bunch of authors who don't care what it meant in the first century. They have no idea. They're sitting there reading contemporary events and they make their money matching them up and having prophecy seminars and selling them to you, telling you they have solved the prophecy puzzle. Well, so did the guy 10 years ago and 10 years ago and 10 years ago. And for some reason, we keep buying the books, don't we? we this is the one. He had a vision. This is the one. He's got it all figured out. Realize the book had a real audience. Third thing I would say is shun overly literal interpretations. Shun rigid literal interpretations. Now, when... The reformers, Luther and such, told us that we should interpret the Bible literally. That did not mean that we should ignore genre or the use of literary devices, right? When you hear the parable and Jesus says, a sower went out to sow, you know deep down that's a parable, that's the genre, and you know it's not really about agriculture, right? I mean, I could preach that sermon where it was all about agriculture, and I would say, folks, don't plant your seeds amongst the thorns. That's the first thing I want to say to you this morning. And you, you, folks, do not plant your seeds on, on stony ground. You will not have a good crop. I mean, I could preach that literally, and I could give you agricultural lessons, though I know nothing about agriculture. I could give you agricultural lessons and say, thus saith the word of God. That would be the most literal interpretation and preaching of the parable of the souls. Would it not? Or when Jesus stands up and says, I am the bread of life, you know, I don't think there's a twist tie involved in that. He's trying to tell me that he is the new manna, he is the substance. And I understand that that is a, a way of, uh, that's, that's a metaphor. It is a metaphor. I am the bread of life. And so when you get down to something called apocalyptic literature, you see books, book like, books like Revelation existed in first century Judaism. And, and there's lots of examples. And they use this same wild imagery in animals and in the stars impregnate these hard-described animals and these eclectic animals. And, you know, this isn't the only book written like that. It's a genre, and you have to read the genre. In fact, I've noticed our movies of late move back to this kind of multi-scene, complex, layered view where we get an overall impact and really can't understand the particulars. It's like a modern movie. See the image. Don't figure out every stone around the throne. Realize 
the majesty and the holiness of, of the Creator. It's really, it might be a mixture of several kinds of genre. It might be prophetic literature. It is that. It's called that in 1-3. It's also apocalyptic in the sense that that's the genre of its time to which it most relates. And it also might be an epistle, a little bit of Paul's kind of genre. We have what to the, to the churches? We have letters to the churches. And so it's a mixture of genres, and we'll read it that way. No one in here really takes it all literal. I promise you, you don't. There's no one who thinks that Babylonian the Great is a literal prostitute or the mother of prostitutes. Is anybody holding out for that interpretation that Babylon the Great is a literal prostitute or the mother of prostitutes? Didn't think so. No one in here thinks that the new Jerusalem is really a bride. You understand that it is a, a new creation. It is a new holy place, a new kingdom. You don't, no one here thinks that that really is a bride or a woman. And very few Protestants, Catholics may see it a little bit different on this one, would take the, the mother in chapter 12 as a literal mother. And at least you wouldn't clothe her with the son. You realize that this is an image. And those monsters, those Monsters exist in chapter 9. How complex are they, and, and how do you, you see them? Do they not look like the locusts from the book of Joel? Very, very much so. Isn't it most respectful to this piece of literature to hear it in its own terms, symbols included, rather than to come to this book with our own layered interpretation and say, this is what it must mean, you see? We cannot place on this genre something this book itself does not expect of itself. As readers, we have no right to do that. Well, let's, let's look at some of the, the wildness, shall we? Turn over to, to chapter 9, verse 3. And out. Well, let's begin in verse 2. These are the locusts. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went out of the pit like smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. And out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given them as scorpions of the earth to have power. And they were told that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only men and do not have, who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like a, a torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it, and they will long to die, and death flees from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle, and on their heads, as it were, crowns of gold, and their faces were like the faces of men, and they had hair like the hair of women, and their teeth were like the teeth of lions. These are scary creatures. And they had a breastplate like that of iron and the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots of many horses rushing to the battle. And they have tails like scorpions and stings in their tails and their power to hurt men for five months. These awful creatures. 
I, I remember over 21 years ago when you were calling me as your pastor, you, you called me up here to answer any question anybody wanted to ask. I'm not sure that's a good idea, but that's what we did. And a guy stood up and he said, well, tell me about those locusts in Revelation 9. You know, the ones with the long hair and the lion's teeth and the face like men, and their, their sound is like chariots. Are those real or not? The room got very quiet. <laughs> well, of course they're real, but I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say I know exactly what they are. I do see the irony that these awful, hideous creatures, the average lifespan of a locust is what, five months? For five months, they're doing damage, not to God's people. God's people have this mark of protection. They come from the bottomless pit, and they do damage to those who are not protected by God. Ah, God uses evil for his own purposes. And I could sit here and talk about what does it mean for them to have a woman's hair and a, and a human face, and we could break all that down, and is it an insect, or is it a human, or is it a foreign army, or what is it? And somehow when you do that, you ruin a good, powerful image. You see that? It's the image of destruction from the pit of hell and an awful creature that would be like your worst nightmare. Is it a man? Yes. Is it an insect? Yes. Does it hurt plants? Not like regular locusts. This one is after men that do not belong to God. And you wake up and you scream. It's the impact of the image. You don't remember the dream in every detail, but your heart's racing. You got it? That's what that's supposed to do. And it does it pretty well, doesn't it? Turn back to chapter 1 and verse 20. How do I know that there's symbols in this book? The reality is that he says at the very beginning that this word is signified or signified. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ who God gave him to show his bondservants the things which shortly must take place and he sent and, what does your translation say? It might say communicated. It might say signified. That's the best word. He signified it by his angels and his bondservant John. At the very beginning, the first chapter, the first verse, he tells us this is symbols. It is signified. It is given in signs. And sometimes, look at chapter 1, verse 20, sometimes he explains the symbols. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, they are the, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the, are the seven churches. Now, isn't that good when he tells, gives you the interpretation key? Somewhere he just gets tired of doing that, and he just keeps talking, and you don't get it. But sometimes he, he gives you. Now, what if you sat here and said, no, the seven stars are seven stars. I'll have it no other way. Well, you'd be wrong, wouldn't you? because they're the angels of the seven churches, you see? Let the symbol be the symbol. Let it, let it exist that way. Another thing I, I would say to you as we read this is don't join the long line of date setters. Just don't do it. And if you ever hear anybody say they're guaranteeing that Jesus is going to come on a certain day, I'll guarantee you he's not coming that day because God would not let them be right about that. Uh, there's, I mean, this, this is not, I'm not just fussing at us. Hippolytus started this in AD 500. 
picking a date. Jehovah's Witnesses are notorious for it. They were sure he was coming. 1874, 1878, 1881, 1910, 1914, 1918. That didn't work out. 1925, nobody dared step up for another 50 years. And then 1975. You see? There's a fifth thing I would say about when you read the Apocalypse of John. Don't think your, your way of reading it is superior. I may read it differently than you do. <laughs> it's complex. I might be wrong. You might be right. We're not going to disagree over the major themes. We got that. How they unfold and what timetable and what comes first, you know, it's all in God's hands. So when you read a book like this, bring a good dose of humility with you. And I've been your pastor for... Uh, starting 22 years now, have I ever tried to change your way of thinking to my way of thinking? Not going to do it. In fact, I hope you're right and I'm wrong on some of this. But have a dose of humility. Don't think that your scheme is better than any other scheme. Here's the, here's the basic scheme. So under this point that don't think your scheme is the best, the, the basic schemes among Christians all circulate around this idea of a millennium. This millennium that comes to us in chapter 20, uh, meaning a thousand-year rule, and this is where it's mentioned. Look at chapter 20, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the abyss and the great chain in his hand, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. There we go. There we go. Satan is bound for a thousand years, the millennium. So most interpretive schemas relate around this millennium, this thousand years. And does Christ come before that, after that? You know, or some would say in the middle. But we'll, we'll look at those. And that's, so that's the key. If someone is post-millennial or pre-millennial, it's about this thousand-year reign. And I'm going to be so humble to tell you, is it a literal thousand years? Man, I don't know. I read in 2 Peter that to God a thousand years is like a day and a day is like a thousand years. It doesn't matter. God's reigning, God's ruling. And after that, he's still going to keep reigning and ruling. And so however he wants to work that out, man, I'd I, I enjoy it for a thousand years. But if it means 10 million, I'll enjoy it for 10 million. If it means one day, as Peter might signify, then I'll enjoy it for one day. Whatever it is, it, it really doesn't make any difference, does it? Well, here, here's the way it goes. Does Jesus return before the future millennium? The, your kingdom come on earth, the millennium, the kingdom on earth. Does he come before, before that? The most commonly held view, it would be my view, and it probably is your view as well. We would join together. Most North American evangelicals today would say that we are premillennial. We think that Jesus returns before the beginning of that reign. That would probably get most of us in in the room, wouldn't it? And if not, no worries. We've already made room for you. Or others are post-millennial, that is, the, the idea that Jesus returns after this thousand years reign. And, and actually, when the world was getting better and better and better and better, then people thought, well, we must be heading toward the millennium. And you see that era of history when we thought science was going to solve all of our problems. And it was getting so good that surely we must be in heaven amongst earth. And it hadn't turned out quite that way. And so that was a popular view. It's an optimistic view uh, there. 
Or, or there's an amillennial view, ah, kind of negating the millennial, millennium there, uh, an amillennial view, which simply says, oh, that's just a, a description of the present era. We're in it. Christ returns, and then we go immediately to new heaven and new earth, and so there it is. Most Christian readers in history were amillennial. Augustine, Lutheran, Luther and Calvin were all amillennial. I don't think they're right, but, you know, I'm, it's Augustine and Luther. I'm not going to sit here with a lot of arrogance, you know? You get it? And yet a lot of North American Christian leaders, Jonathan Edwards, fire-preaching, <laughs> hell-throwing preacher, Jonathan Edwards, thought to be the brightest American to ever live. Well... Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney were post-millennialists, you see. And yet, the earliest church fathers were like us. They were pre-millennialists, I'm happy to say. If you get before Augustine, you go to the, the early centuries when we begin to have writings of the early church fathers, when you get into those earliest church fathers, they're writing, they are pre-millennialists like us. And so... There you have it. So we started as premillennialists. We kind of went over to amillennialists. We things were getting better. We became postmillennialists, and now we've returned to being premillennialists. You see? Does it really matter? Well, we win in the end, and God's in control, and He rules, and you know I can defend my position and ready to do so. But I'm not going to stay. Awake tonight, if we have post-millennialists among us, I'm a-okay with that. That's okay. You see, we all read it in our own time, our own day. Let me give you an example. You know the kings from the east in Revelation 16, 12. Everybody used to be sure this was the Turkish Ottoman Empire. And that didn't work out. And then our WW2 generation... They were sure it was Japan. That didn't work out. They're now our allies, aren't they? And then after Japan's kind of military collapse, though they are rising again, I read, then we were sure that, that, that from the east, the kings from the east was China, you see. This end-time puzzle is very elastic and and what gets me, you know what I really think the truth is? Though I do want to study it, God often works things out in a way that none of us ever imagined, right? We're probably all wrong, right? <laughs> the Messiah's coming. The Messiah's coming. First time, first time. Behold, a virgin shall conceive, bear a son. Emmanuel, God with us. Messiah's coming. Did anybody get it right how that turned out? Did anybody say, oh, yeah, I know how that's going to work out. I got the prophecy. Let me show you over here on my paper. There's going to be a, a teenage virgin. They might have got the virgin part right from Isaiah. That'd be the end of it. And no, 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 no royalty. No, it's going to be an unheard of carpenter by the name of Joseph, you see? No, no, not Jerusalem. They could have gotten this from prophecies. It's going to be in Bethlehem, 
And even if you got all that right, which nobody did, that's why the Jews couldn't get it, absolutely no one, there is no extant writing that anyone said the Messiah is going to save the world by dying. Nobody got it. Nobody. Not one. To hang on the tree was to be cursed. That is the opposite of what anybody ever thought was going to be the answer. God turned it upside down. They had military images. They had an earthly deliverer. They were arguing over seats, the disciples, at the right and the left hand of the Messiah. And so God said, well, let me take all this prophecy. Let me work out in a way that you never thought. You know what? But it was there, wasn't it? All along, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, like a lamb that is silent, the sheep before the shearers, the lamb that is slaughtered, he did not open his mouth. You see? But it was there, but nobody got it. I kind of got an idea. This is here. But maybe we don't completely, nor will we ever completely get it. You see? Probably written in 90 AD during Domitian's reign when Christians were being persecuted heavily they're obviously being pushed quickly in summary i'm going to give you the key points of revelation and this is what it's about i don't care what your scheme is number one god is awesome and majestic he is sovereign in all of our troubles god is awesome awesome and majestic and sovereign in all of our troubles we'll put this on the web i don't have time for you to write it that jesus sacrifice as the lamb ultimately brings a complete deliverance for those who trust him That the lamb that is slain brings deliverance to all who will trust him. That God's judgments on the world often serve notice on the world that God will avenge his people. When you hurt his people, you hurt him. You will pay. That regardless how things next, regardless how things appear in the short run, sin does not go unpunished. God will judge. Next, God can and will accomplish his purposes through the small and persecuted remnant. He is not dependent upon the world's set of values and power. Next, worship leads us from grief over our suffering to God's eternal purposes seen from a heavenly perspective. Next, when you say Jesus is Lord, you're inviting persecution on yourself and your family. Now that falls on deaf ears in this room. You go over to China and say that. You go to Africa and say that. Where they mumble the hymns so as not to be heard and jailed. When you say Jesus is Lord, you're inviting persecution and more and more in our own country. Is it not so? Next, Christ is worth dying for. Next, the radical contrast exists between God's kingdom, exemplified in the bride, the new Jerusalem, and the world's values, exemplified in the prostitute Babylon. Next, 
The hope that God has prepared for us far exceeds our present sufferings. Next, that God's plan and church ultimately include. Now, we, at First Baptist Church, you got this one right a long time ago. That God's plan and church ultimately include representatives of all people groups. All people groups. I'm going to close quickly by reading a couple of passages and we'll be done. And then I saw heaven open. And behold, the white horse and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows but he himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed with fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth, this is no Bethlehem baby, and from his mouth is a sword, a sharp sword, so with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads a winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh is a name that is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. We could break that down, but it'd ruin it, wouldn't it? Lastly and finally, and I saw a new heaven. This is the end. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth passed away. There is no longer any sea. Sea is dark. Sea is evil. There is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And this works whether you're in the first century or whether you're in 2016. And he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall no longer be any death. There's your end. Those that stood by graveside days, weeks, months ago, there shall no longer be any death. And there shall no longer be any mourning. There shall no longer be any crying or pain. For the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And he said, Write these down, for they are faithful and true. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and I am the end. And I will give the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my child. Let us pray. 
Oh God, what a wonderful book. We just read the description of you on your throne. I want to fall on my knees and say, don't look this way. I see the Almighty holding the scroll that unleashes the future. And it can't happen because no one is good enough. And I get punched in the side by the heavenly dweller who tells me, He's here. He's here. Look over there. You're a lamb, just like John the baptizer said, and you have scars, and I can see that you've been slain, and yet you've got those seven horns, mean you have complete rule, and seven eyes, which mean you know everything, and I fall down and I say, my off-tuned voice in the midst of the throngs of heaven with perfect pitch. You are worthy. For you spilt your blood that we could be spared. And I say to the Lamb, to the one on the throne, to the new heaven, to the new earth, oh come. I can surely take a dose of no more death, no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain. And what will the day be like when God himself dwells among his people?